even now, Lord Jesus, even now, even now, for I ask this in your name, amen. God be praised. What a delicious, delightful opportunity that I have to be with you. I feel like I am coming home, even for the first time. I accepted uh, Dr. D's invitation last year. I was not able to come because of illness. He didn't give up on me and allowed me to come this year. And I, I wanted to come because I had a sneaky suspicion that I would be meeting people that I would be spending eternity with, and I thought it would be about time for us to get to know each other. So I'm, I'm glad to see you and glad to worship uh, our Lord with you. First Samuel chapter 20. First Samuel chapter 20. I'm going to read an, uh, um, an abbreviated teaching passage. See, where's that clock at? Where's that clock at? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. That's important. <laughs> Chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, verses 14 through 17. I want to talk about the face of grace. The face of grace. Hear these words from the word. If I continue to live... Show me kindness from the Lord, but if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him. Because he loved him as he loved himself. The Bible has a lot to say about relationships. Relationship between a husband and a wife. Amram and Jacobed. Or Abraham and Sarah. He has a lot to say about the relationship between parents and children. Or you consider Zechariah and Elizabeth who were the parents of John the Baptist. The relationship between siblings, Jacob and Esau brothers, Leah and Rachel sisters, James and John brothers, Mary and Martha sisters, but the Bible does not have as much to say about relationship between friends like Jonathan and David, a special relationship. Saul had reigned over the United States of Israel, 12 tribes, for 42 years. He had a daughter by the name of Michael, and David married her. He had a son by the name of Jonathan, and they were the best of friends. Friends, like in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1, verse 3. 
And particularly in 1 Samuel 18, 1 and 3, that David loved Jonathan and Jonathan loved David, but Jonathan's love was as one who loved himself. And in 1 Samuel 20, verse 17, Jonathan loved David as he loved his own soul, as he loved himself. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 41. And it appeared that this would be the last time that they would see each other. That is David and Jonathan. And David bowed down three times. And they embraced and they kissed. Because Jonathan loved David. And David loved Jonathan. And they were friends. But something happened. David was that one in 1 Samuel chapter 16 who played his harp so soothingly that the demonic and melancholic spirits left Saul. David was the one who was the hero for Israel. When they fought against the Philistines and everyone else was frightened to fight Goliath the giant, David volunteered. And with the power of God, he defeated Goliath. It wasn't the stone, not even the centrifugal force that hit Goliath in the middle of the head. It was God's power, ultimately, that did it. And here are the women now in 1 Samuel 18, 7 through 9, after David has won the victory. Saul's song had topped the pop music list for all of this time. Saul has slain his thousands. But now they say, David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul began from that moment to become envious and jealous. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 18, verse 9, that from that day he began to put David under surveillance and to watch him because he sensed that in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 20, that David would be the one who would ultimately replace him and not his son, the heir apparent, Jonathan. And he sought occasion to put David to death. That's why David will say in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3, there's only one step between me and death. Here I am, here death is, and what keeps death from getting to me is what you just got finished singing. Grace. Grace steps between me and death. Some of you are sitting here right now You understand that, whether it was death or some kind of danger. Like me, diagnosed with cancer for three times. Me, death, grace steps in between. Some of you may have been voted the most likely not to succeed in high school. I mean that very sincerely. You were not supposed to arrive. You were not supposed to be where you were few years ago and where you are now, but grace steps between you. Whether it was danger, whether people had given up on you, 
whether your heart was broken, whether there was a relational rift. Grace! So many dangers, tolls, and snares I have already come. Grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me on. Since David knew that Saul wanted to kill him and came very close to killing him, trying to make him a wall hanging with his javelin, and David was able to escape. David and Jonathan will make a covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 17, the passage I just read. Jonathan knew that David would succeed his father. And therefore, Jonathan says, David, if I die before you, I want you to remember my family that will succeed me. Show God's hesed. That's the word for grace in the Old Testament. Show God's loyal covenant love for my family. Not contractual love. Because God didn't make contracts. God makes covenants. A contract is, if I do my 50%, God does his. If I'm faithful, God's faithful. If I'm not faithful, then the contract is null and void. No, no, no. The covenant is, if I'm not faithful, God is faithful. The covenant is this. God cannot love me more if I'm better. And God cannot love me less no matter what I do. His love is not mercurial. It's not like mercury within a thermometer that goes up and down depending upon the external temperature. God's love is consistent. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thou. Compassions, they fail not as thou hast been. Thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I've needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. And sure enough, in the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel, on Mount Gilboa, Saul and Israel are fighting the Philistines. And the Philistines are victorious. Saul dies. Jonathan is killed. And everyone knew that if there was an heir apparent, that an individual who had an eye on the throne would try to exterminate the king's family because that relative had a legal right to the throne. Therefore, people would try to spare and take the king's family and put him in the place of safety. That's what we have in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, where Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who is five years old at this time, is picked up by the nurse and tries, she tries to usher and escort him into a place of safety. In her haste, she drops him. Now he's crippled in both feet. No mobility. With one foot, that's crippled. He could drag himself. But with both feet, he's immobile and will have to be carried by someone else. The Bible says in 
2 Samuel chapter 5, verse number 5, David is now king, king beginning at Hebron, and is king there for seven and a half years, which would make Mephibosheth now 12 and a half years of age in 2 Samuel 5, 5. One of the great movies that I love because it has such profound theological implication is Forrest Gump. Here's Bubba, here's Forrest. They're fighting in the rice paddies of Vietnam. The shrapnel is falling, the bombs are falling, the rifles are being fired. And what are they talking about? Shit! Forrest, if we get back to the States, I'm going to start a, a shrimp boat company. I'll be the captain and you'll be the co-captain. Bubba dies in Vietnam. Forrest survives it. But Bubba has said before, as they've talked, I want you to remember my family if I don't make it back. And sure enough, after Forrest is successful as a shrimp boat captain and makes tons of money, he sends the mailman to go to Bubba's house where his mother lived, maybe Corncob, Mississippi. And there she is in this very rural area. Mm. No grass, children playing everywhere. Not clothed in an elegant way at all, very poor. She gets the check, and it must be so large that she falls back and faints. And now you see her sitting, being served by others instead of serving others. Because Forrest remembered what he promised his friend Bubba. Here is David sitting in the Oval Office and looking across the great expanse. And he remembers the promise that he made his best friend, Jonathan. David, if you succeed me, show God's kindness to my family. So David begins to participate in a soliloquy, self-conversation, talking to himself. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul, that I can show God's kindness to for Jonathan's sake. He's talking to himself. Do you hear that question? Is there anyone still left? There are redemptive reverberations, echoes of mercy, whispers of love. Is there anyone? as if it's anticipating John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life whosoever anyone someone everyone mm. because the invitation is to all and I am just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody anyone Poor, rich, anyone, black, white, brown, yellow, red, anyone educated or uneducated, anyone. And 
God saves from the uttermost to the guttermost. And don't let the devil lie to you and tell you that you're too far gone, that God can't save you. And don't give up on people who look like they can't be saved. It only takes a chapter for Saul in Acts chapter 8 to go from the church's number one public enemy to Acts chapter 9 to go to the church's number one public defender. Just one chapter. From one chapter in chapter 8 where he's arresting people, confiscating their goods for what? Preaching the gospel and worshiping Jesus to chapter 9. Because in chapter 8, he's arresting people. But in chapter 9, he's arrested by the Lord. In chapter 8, he's given orders. In chapter 9, he's taking orders. Lord, what do you want me to do? And some people may be just one chapter away, one chapter away from spiritual deliverance. You may be just one chapter away from relational deliverance, from physical deliverance, from emotional deliverance. It'll take, it'll take God long to go from your chapter 8 to his chapter 9. Never give up on people because the Lord has not given up on you. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I can show God's hesed kindness to for Jonathan's sake, for the sake of the son of the king? And evidently, the word gets around in the palace environs that David is asking this question. He asks it again. Is there anyone, verse 3, in the house of Saul that I can show God's kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And someone reports to him and says, yes, there is one. His name is Ziba. He's Saul's former chamberlain, former household manager. And David sends for him and asks him that question. And Ziba says, yes, there's one. He lives in the house of Mercure, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Mm. The house of Mercure, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Lodibar means no pasture. Lodibar means barren. It's synonymous to anarchy, lawlessness. It's a place you don't want to live. And that's where Mephibosheth has been hiding all of these years because he knows that he is the number one candidate for extermination for he is the grandson of Saul and the son of the heir apparent, Jonathan. Notice what he does not name. He, not, he names his condition. He's crippled in both feet. He does not name him by name. He doesn't say Mephibosheth. He says, but he's crippled in both feet. People look at people according to their condition. That respect that they are a person necessarily made in the imago Dei, the image of God. But you must not allow anyone to define you by your condition. You've been given a new name. Isn't it amazing that people like Ludwig von Beethoven, who wrote concertos and wonderful musical renditions, was a man who could not hear. And so he would have the 
legs of the piano cut off so that he could get on the ground and feel the vibrations from the piano to write his concertos and his musical compositions. Crippled in both feet. Mm. Who would ever thought that a man that was reduced to such a condition could be so successful? Fanny Crosby, who wrote thousands of hymns, could not see. Crippled in both feet. My favorite is Blessed Assurance. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Watching and waiting, she can't see. Looking above, she can't see. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst in my sight. She can't see. She doesn't see with these. She sees with the eye of faith. People like Wilbur Rudolph, the first woman to win three gold medals at the Olympics. She did it in the Olympics in Rome in 1960. She had to overcome being crippled in both feet. Polio. And yet she outran everyone. What has God helped you to overcome when you were crippled in both feet? How many teachers have told you like they've told me? You can't make it in this school. You don't have the intelligence. And yet God raises you up to be the salutatorian and the valedictorian. How many people have told you your marriage would never make it? And you would never make it. And yet God takes people who are crippled in both feet with no mobility. They can't do it on their own. God raises them up and God leads them. Yes, there's one. He is in the house of Akira, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar, but he's crippled in both feet. David sends for him. I'm sure Mephibosheth was nervous. They found me. They've located me. He's brought not on Air Force One. They didn't have planes then, but they, they had him brought to Jerusalem. Red carpet rolled out. He is helped, brought in all the way into the Oval Office of King David. And the first thing that is uttered is the word of David. Mephibosheth, not you crippled young man. No, nothing about his condition. Everything about his character, his name. Mephibosheth. And he says, your servant what a brief yet profound relationship. Reminds me of Mary Magdalene and Jesus on that resurrection morning. And Jesus said, Mary? And her response was, Rabboni. How do you have a conversation like that? Just one word with another word. It's because of relationship. And there was no one who could say it like Jesus. Mary when he calls your name in the words of the Negro spiritual, hush, hush, somebody's calling my name. It sounds like Jesus. And she said, Rabboni. And Mephibosheth said, 
your servant. He bows down. And then David says to him, today, you are going to have all the real estate that your father formerly owned and all the real estate that your grandfather Saul owned. Fifteen sons of Zeba will manage your land, sow your seed, harvest, plus 20 more servants. That's 35. And then in verse 7, verse 10, and verse 13, and verse 11, you will always be mm, a guest at my table. But then he says in verse 11, not as one of my sons, not as one of the guests and as one of the sons, but as one of my sons. And Mephibosheth is struck with awe. Listen to this response. How can you, how can you treat me the way you're treating me? And I'm such a dead dog. How can you treat a dead dog? Not just a dog, but a dead dog like this. Because everywhere I read in the Bible, every time the word dog comes up, it's always used in a pejorative, demeaning, negative sense. First Samuel. Nine. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 43, listen to the words of Goliath as David approaches him on the battlefield. Are you coming to me? You're coming as if you're going to be a person with staves, like a dead dog. Matthew 7, 6. Don't cast that which is holy. Unto dogs. Philippians 3 and 2. Watch out for the dogs. 2 Peter 2, 2. A dog returns to its vomit. Dog. Not just, why are you treating me like this and I'm such a dog, but a dead dog. He understands grace. In other words, I don't, I, I, I don't deserve this. I'm a dead dog. Now, he could have said, it's about time that you discovered who I am. I've been in Lodibar all these years. You late bringing me up. I should have been here a long time ago. I'm Saul's grandson, and I'm Jonathan's son. I'm entitled to this. I deserve this. And yet David would have understood this because David, in 1 Samuel, 7, 1 Samuel chapter 16, was anointed to be king. But it took him years before he was appointed king. He was anointed king, but it took years before he became the appointed king. Do you know what it's like to be anointed, to be chosen, to be set apart for something, and yet that something doesn't arrive until later? And you wait on your appointments. Stop trying to pry open the doors. Pray open the doors. Pray open it. If you have to pry it open, then that's something you're doing. Just wait. God has not forgotten you. Whatever that is, he knows your address. 
He knows your email address. He knows how to tweet. He can get in your dreams. Let him order your steps and let him order your stops until it's his time. He knows you in Lodibar. You've been anointed. You will be appointed at his own time. And therefore, he says, how can you treat me like this? And I'm just a dead dog. I've got nine minutes and 25 seconds. Here's some things that Mephibosheth wants to say to Robert Smith. He wants to teach me something because what he's doing is peeking over the mountains into the New Testament and doesn't even know it because it's being done by the Spirit. The first thing is he teaches us that we have been adopted, adopted. Notice verse 7, verse 10, and verse 11 and 13. Verse 7 and 10 and 13, you'll be my guests at my dinner table. But verse 11 says, like one of my sons. Hmm. You're my son. I've adopted you. You act as if you're at home because you are. I've adopted you. Do you realize that we've been adopted? Romans chapter 8 verse 15 that, and 16. That we are no longer, we got finished seeing that. We're no longer slaves, but we are sons. Sons, mm, that has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with inheritance. So my sister is a son. Had that to do with her gender? It has to do with her relationship to her father. Therefore, she has been adopted into the family. Verse 16, and our spirit, mm, small, lowercase s, Bears witness with his spirit, capital S, that we are the children of God. He is our Abba. I'm in his family. And guess what? I didn't do anything to be in his family. When you adopt someone, you've got to be able, number one, to pay for it. It's very expensive. We got adopted. Salvation is not cheap. Is expensive. It brought heaven to the sense that it had to give up its crown jewel, Jesus. He paid for it. As Spurgeon says, when God says Jesus, God has exhausted his vocabulary, which means he can't say anything greater or higher than Jesus. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've been adopted. And it's a different type of adoption. I have dear friends. They're white. They've adopted two girls from China. Those girls will have a new home, a new name, a new social security number, and everything else. But they never look like their parents. But when you get adopted, God puts his spirit in you so much so that we are being sanctified. That is, we are being conformed to the image of God's dear son, and we began to look more and more like him. We'll never look exactly like him while we're being sanctified. That comes when we are glorified. For the Bible says in 1 John 3 and 2, it does not yet appear where we're going to be. But when he appears, we'll be like him. For 
We shall see him as he is. Well, six minutes. Another thing. We're not, we've not only been adopted, we have access to the Father. Access. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith through him in this grace. We have access to the Father. I remember that portrait. I have a picture of it in my office. Here is John Fitzgerald Kennedy sitting down in his old office uh, with uh, his cabinet around him, transacting business that will affect the entire world. He has his tie and loosen, his shirt unbuttoned, down to here, talking. And in front of his desk is little John John, John Jr., playing with his toys. Wow! Major business is taking place in that office. And John Jr. is really saying, look, that's not the president. That's my daddy. And I can come to my daddy whenever I want to. Oh, what peace. Help me, Jesus. We often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry, not just a big thing, everything to God in prayer. I think he also teaches us this, that we are broken. Notice, he's crippled in both feet. So he can't move and go anywhere on his own. He has to get help from the outside because he's broken, like all of us broken. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and all the king's horses, all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty together again. But I know a king who can. And he took our brokenness. Since we couldn't come to him, he came to us. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. We're not Pelagians coming to God. We're not even semi-Pelagians meeting God halfway. We can't come to God on our own. Grace brings God to us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Or as Eugene Peterson says in his message Bible, the word was made flesh and moved into the neighborhood. He came to us because we could not come to him. And he took the broken pieces of our lives and made us brand new. We are individuals who were broken. He didn't patch up. But he made us new. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creature. Three minutes. Another thing. We don't have time. No. Let's get to this. We are instantaneously rich. You are looking at a rich man. I'm rich. I'm a poor rich man. You want to know how rich I am? Don't check my wallet. That won't do it. Don't check my carport. It's nice to have a lot here. It's nice to have a lot under, under the carport. And everything, nothing wrong with that. When I was a young lad, I was, I was as far as I was concerned, the world's greatest monopoly player. And you could tell. Look at my piles of money on the side. Look at my vehicles. Look at my real estate. But when the game was over, all of that went right back in the box. What do you have that doesn't go back in the box? 
My relationship with Jesus cannot be a no, cannot be garnished, cannot be lost. Therefore, there's no separation between us. Time, when it falls exhausted at the feet of eternity, then life will be lived on an eternal state. But, last of all, I'm invited to the king's table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ah, Revelation 19, 9 and 10. Can you imagine when the dinner bell was rung? That noise of the patting of the feet where sons and daughter and a daughter showed up at the dinner table. According to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, David had 19 sons and one daughter. The daughter's name was Tamar. And the dinner bell is wrong. And there are people like Shephatiah and Shemaiah and Solomon and Shobab who make their way to the dinner table. And there are individuals like Absalom and Adonijah and Amnon who make their way to the dinner table. And there are Ibhar and Ithrium when they hear the dinner bell ring, make their way to the dinner table. And there is Nathan and Nephag and Noga. They make their way to the dinner table. And there is Eliada. There is Eliphalet number one and Eliphalet number two. There is Elishama number one and Elishama number two. They hit a bell and they make their way to the dinner table. And there is Japhia. And there is Daniel who make their way to the dinner table. And there is alone Tamar who makes her way to the dinner table. And oh, what a wonderful sight that is. But there is one chair that is not filled. And you can hear the sound of several feet. Two men who are carrying the crippled Mephibosheth. They bring him and set him in, in the vacant chair at the dinner table. And there he rests like one of David's own children. Well, one of these days when life is over, when the great dinner bell rings and the dead in Christ rises first and those who remain and are alive are caught up to meet him in the air. I'll find my seat at the dinner table and there we shall praise God for all that he's done for us. Oh yeah, one Friday 
He died that we might be free. And they put a rock in front of my eye rock to try to keep our rock inside of that rock. But Sunday morning, the rock was rolled away and Jesus showed up and declared, all power is in my hand. I'm glad today for grace. And I'm already two minutes over time, but I'm still glad for grace. Glad for grace. Come on up, son. I better stop now.